Good evening. For the last of our series of debates, famous debates in uh, Jewish history, we're going to look at two debates which refer to Eretz Israel, to the land of Israel. And the reason why I'm going into this topic particularly at this time is that both of these subjects are particularly relevant. The first one, obviously, more relevant in the sense that is coming upon us very soon. The Shemitah year begins this year, this Rosh Hashanah, 5782 Toshim And the other debate which deals with the question of land for peace, two-state solution, and all the political discussions which I'm sure are going to be uh, happening very, very soon again, um, that again is an interesting debate with opinions both from the uh, more ancient sources, let's call it that, and from the modern sources as we have them uh, recorded in uh, the 20th and 21st century. So let's look a little bit at the whole question of Shemitah. As we know, Shemitah is a halakha from the Torah, and the halakha says quite clearly that every seven years, it's uh, what we call the sabbatical year, this is the origin of the idea of a sabbatical, um, which uh, is something that certainly uh, teachers and others are very aware of, uh, may be lucky enough to experience. The concept of the Shemitah is uh, that every seven years the land goes into what we call Shabbat mode. Shabbat mode meaning just like on Shabbat every week we do not work uh, so the seventh year for the land of Israel becomes like Shabbos. And again, work is uh, forbidden or restricted or an enormous number of halachot which I cannot go into in this particular session in terms of what we are allowed or not allowed to do on the land during the Shemitah year. What is interesting and what has always been interesting is the question of what um, allowance would there be in a situation where, for instance, you were relying on, for your parnassah on agricultural produce of the land of Israel, how would you deal with the uh, challenges, sort of an understatement, the challenges of the laws of Shemitah? Basically, what happens during Shemitah year that uh, tools are down, no plowing takes place, etc., and whatever grows, grows. They can't stop the things growing. But there are various restrictions on what you're allowed to eat from the, uh, from the ground, what you're allowed to use, whether you can do business with them. Very major section of Jewish law which deals with this particular issue as it applies to Eretz Israel. Uh, by the way, for, for reference, there are two sources which I recommend uh, one should read uh, if one wants to follow this up. One in Hebrew is the fantastic Sefer La'or Halacha by Reb Zevin, which has a very, very significant essay on the issues of Shemitah, particularly the Heta Mechira, we're going to be talking about in a minute. And the other article which is found in English is in a book called The Dietary Laws. This is a book which was produced... Uh, probably 30, 40 years ago, in uh, the UK, published by Sonsino, and the author, Diane Isidore Grunfeld, Zichron Livrocha, one of the Dayanim of the Bet Din in London, really was not only a major Tomachochem, he came from Germany, he was a, um, a, uh, a lawyer, I think he might have been a judge already in Germany, I don't know, 
And the clarity of his writing on this particular topic is quite, quite uh, breathtaking. And he has a very long article explaining all the halachic intricacies of whether we can sell the land, what we can do on the land, etc., etc., as we're going to be mentioning this evening. So those are two references that I do recommend, and they will bring you up to speed in terms of preparation for the coming Schmitzia, which is really very soon upon us. If you are in agriculture, you're a farmer in Eretz Israel, then I am sure this is already a major issue of preparation, um, uh, whatever you're going to do during the Schmitter year, you're already thinking about it. And one of the beautiful things about the Schmitter year for farmers is the fact that the idea of not working the land means you have more time on your hands to go and study Torah. One of the really very, very significant um, memories I have from a trip to Israel in the 1990s, must have been the Schmitter year in 1994, was when we visited, took a group from London, we visited a um, the yeshiva of the kibbutz Adati, which we had a connection with in our school. And when we got there, there was a group sitting around studying, really looked like what we call in England a bunch of yokels. Yokels meaning like, you know, farmers and sort of people who looked as if they spent their days uh, tilling the soil, to put it mildly. Uh, and they were sitting around learning, learning a, a very significant section of Talmud. And when I asked the Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva what's going on, he said, this is one of our regular groups during the Schmidt year that come from uh, kibbutz, one of the kibbutzim in the south, um, don't remember now which kibbutz it was, and they come every week to study in the Yeshiva as part of their Shemitah activity. It's really, it's really something to see. It's something which we, outside Israel, which was so disconnected from uh, agriculture and everything to do with it, you know, as far as we're concerned, everything comes in plastic wrapping, and that's basically what it boils down to. The um, the people who are directly involved with agriculture in Israel, it's really a whole different parsha, and Shemitah is something which they take extremely seriously. What I will add is that, according to most opinions today, the law of Shemitah is of rabbinical standard, meaning that the Torah law is not in... Um, uh, not enforced today, that's to do with another law which is connected to Shemitah, which is the law of Yovel. The Jubilee year, which is an extra Shemitah year, every 50 years, the land is fellow year 49 and year 52 years, which is even more remarkable. And that law of Yovel has not applied literally for thousands of years. It is a law which depends on the majority of Jews in the world living in Eretz Israel. Now, it could be, we come back in 20, 30 years' time, we may have to have a discussion whether Yovel can be reinstituted, because by then it's almost uh, definite, not almost, it is definite, that the majority of Jews in the world recognized as Jews will be living, thank God, in Eretz Israel. So that's a whole discussion, and Shemitah depends on the validity of Yovel. So since Yovel today does not apply, Shemitah would not apply in biblical force, but it certainly is a rabbinical uh, law, a law of Midrabanan, and according to one opinion, it's even Midat Chasidut, that we keep it today because of, you know, an extra act of piety, but do we really need to keep it? And according to one opinion, very famous opinion of the Balamon, no, not that we have to keep it, but we do it as 
a way of remembering what we need to do when, please God, it becomes relevant in the future. Now, what became extremely challenging, and this is a historical analysis, is when we go back to the um, the early issue, the issue that we talk about, the beginning of the Moshavot, beginning of the Kibbutzim, and this is sort of mid to eight to late 1800s, uh, the Talmidim of the Vonagon and the uh, Talmidim of the Baal Shem Tov and various groups came to Eretz Israel and many set up the the uh, agricultural developments which uh, today we go, we visit, these are beautiful places to visit. I am sure they were not so easy to live in, certainly not in the 1800s. But in 1888, the question came up that the Schmitter year is happening, what do we do? And their question was literally a life and death question because they were relying on the produce that they could grow. And if they were not allowed to do anything in the land for a whole year, then the consequence would be dire. If they stayed in Israel, they would not have Parnassah, which meant that from those days it could literally be life and death situation, or they would have to leave Israel. This was something which was very, very severe. And the question was raised to the great Godlador in Eastern Europe, Yitzhak Hanan Specter, the, uh, after whom Ritz, the famous <coughs> Yeshiva University rabbinic school, is named after him. And he was the greatest rabbi of his generation, and he said that there is an allowance of what we call now, it's been known ever since, as heter mechira, selling the land. What does that mean? It's like what we do on Pesach. We take the, on Pesach, our chometz, we take the bottle of whiskey, put it into the closet, we lock the closet, and we sell it uh, nominally to the uh, non-Jewish neighbor or to the to the uh, janitor in the shul or whatever, through the rabbi, and that becomes owned by the non-Jew for the period of seven days, eight days, and after Pesach, we get it back again, and during that time that uh, the non-Jew owned it, it was not ours, and therefore we are not in violation of any of the laws of Pesach by having it in our house. I think everybody understands that. So the question is, what about Shemitah? How does that work? And the suggestion Rabbi Spector made was that a non-Jew can purchase Eretz Israel to the point where if a non-Jew owns the land of Israel, then the areas which are owned by the non-Jew can be treated as if they are not um, bound by the laws of Eretz Israel, the mitzvot tuloi ba'aretz, and as a consequence, work can be done on the land as if it is a regular year, and the produce can be treated normally. Schmitter produce has very special uh, limitations um, beyond the scope of what we're talking about this evening, but the Heta Mechira would allow the, the land to be uh, worked. So Rabbi Spector gave this allowance in 1888, and he did it on condition. Remember, he's in uh, Lithuania or Poland, I don't remember now where he was, thinking Kovna, Kaunas, which is in Lithuania, and he was um, uh, on, uh, insistent that the law would be um, enforced only, this, this special allowance, only with the agreement of the Rabbanim in Yerushalayim. And of course, even in those days, there were extremely erudite rabbis living in Jerusalem, as there always have been, and they uh, had an interesting split. The Sephardi rabbis agreed with Rabbi Spector, 
and said, this is what we've got to do, whereas the Ashkenazi rabbis living in Israel at the time, in Yerushalayim, were in disagreement. They did not agree with the allowance. And, for instance, um, Peratikva, which was originally an agricultural development, did not rely on Hetemechira. They didn't rely on the sale of the land in 1888 or any time after that. And, as a consequence, they obviously had to get Stakar from Chutzlar, otherwise they would have all... Uh, had to leave Israel. They just did not have any other source of income. So that was the story in 1888, and the allowance was made. It then got renewed again for a number of times. Uh, after Rabbi Spector died, it was continued. And, of course, the big change came in 1904, when Rabbi uh, Cook, Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Cook, arrived in Eretz Israel. He became the chief rabbi in Yafo, which is near Tel Aviv, and he eventually obviously becomes the chief rabbi of Palestine, and of course with uh, such a significant personality in at the helm of uh, religious issues in Eretz Israel, this was one of the major issues that he had to deal with. And again, Rav Cook's approach was like Rabbi Spector's approach, that we are dealing with a situation where the uh, people's uh, livelihood, their literally, it could be life and death for people living in Israel at the time. And he was prepared to continue with the Heta Mechira, again, on the condition that one should try and, excuse me, minimize whatever work one was doing in Eretz Israel, but at the same time to um, um, understand that this allowance was to be made because of the pervading economic conditions. And this again was renewed, the Heta Mechira, every Shemitah, through the life of Rokuk, till he died in 1935. It was then taken over by the chief rabbinate after that, the chief rabbinate of Palestine, which in 1948 became the chief rabbinate of Israel. So rabbis like Rabbi Isaac Herzog, um, and uh, Rabbi Unterman and uh, rabbis after Rabbi Goran and uh, Rabbi Lau, all of them have uh, continued with this allowance called Heta Mechira, and it is still, I'm sure in the next couple of weeks, we'll get a news item from Israel that, again, this was, um, this was facilitated by the rabbinate, the sale of the land to allow people who have to, to do basic agricultural work in the land for the purposes of uh, Parnassah, of the economy. Now, you may say to me, listen, 1888 was a very small issue, a few thousand people living there. Now, thank God, in uh, 2022, we're talking about, 2021, we're talking about uh, millions of people living there. And the question therefore arises, should we even have Heta Mechira today? And this is a very big debate. The uh, I, I believe people like Rabbi Cook understood, and the people have come after him, that this is not just about, nowadays, the survival in Eretz Israel of the people living there, but it's also about the economic de- uh, development, uh, protection, whatever word you want to use, of the agricultural sector in Israel. At one time, this was the biggest uh, export sector in, in, in Eretz Israel, in the, in the country. Uh, today, that's not true, as far as I understand, but it's still pretty major in terms of what is sent out around the world. And again, with the Schmitter restrictions, this would affect very, very 
uh, severely those exports and would affect the agricultural sector in Israel. So there is still uh, to be made an economic argument, uh, what I'm going to call bigger picture argument, which I believe, or many rabbis still believe, that uh, uh, on the basis of what Rabbi Cook and Rabbi Spector originally said, this would justify continuing with the Heta Mechira. However, as the years go on and we become more self-sufficient and more able to sustain other areas of the economy, it could be, uh, maybe already this year, maybe that the allowance of what the Heta Mechira will allow you to do will be more restrictive than it has been in the past. There are some actions, some activities which will have, may have been allowed in the past but may not necessarily be allowed in this particular Shemitah year. And the details, again, uh, just look at the press, follow the news items, I'm sure this will all be explained. However, what is very, very interesting is the... Back into the history, we go back to 1933. And in 1933, there was a major aliyah from Lithuania to Eretz Israel, not a group of people, but one particular rabbi who came by the name of Rav Avram Yeshaya Karelitz. Avram Yeshaya Karelitz is known by the sefer which he composed, the work of Halakha, known as the Chazon Ish. Chazon Ish is, a, I mean, a classic is, is an understatement. This really was a Gaon, a great, great man. And when you see pictures of him, he's sort of got this uh, otherworldly look. Uh, there are people alive today who still remember him, still had connection with him. Uh, the rabbi who married us in London only passed away last year. Rabbi Feldman in London, he was uh, uh, in Eretz Israel, was with the Chazanish for, for, for a period of time. Um, and so, you know, he's not someone that is unknown to the Jewish world today. Um, people are still around who remember him. However, the Chazanish, when he came to Eretz Israel, he, uh, his uh, purpose, or one of the purposes that he eventually designated, was to create a very strict Torah community, what is known today as the Haredi community, in Eretz Israel. And he settled in Bnei Brak, which in 1933 was pretty primitive, maybe one or two streets, and of course now you go to Bnei Brak, it's just quite extraordinary how it's grown. And the whole uh, focus of Rabbi Karelitz was to ensure that the Torah community would survive, would grow in Eretz Israel, and would keep the halakha to the highest standard possible. So, of course, when it comes to Shemitah, the discussion came up at that particular juncture of, of a Shemitah year. Uh, I don't know which one it was in the 30s, but the um, Shmiti obviously came around and Rav Karelitz absolutely rejected the concept of Heta Mechira, not to sell the land of Israel. This was a compromise as far as he was concerned and was very halachically dubious. Uh, I wonder what he said about selling Chometz, I don't know, but I suspect maybe he, he made a difference between one and the other, between selling Chometz and selling the land. I don't know, that's something to look up. But the reality was that according to Rav Karelitz, this was not acceptable practice. Uh, that was his opinion until he died in 1954. And of course, um, today there is a, a, a very large sector in Eretz Israel of the Haredim who do not accept Heta Mechira whatsoever. 
So, what you have, um, there's an interesting anecdote, by the way, that when Rav Kareles came to Eretz Israel, he was a young man, and Rav Kook was already... Uh, in 1933, Rav Kook was uh, in his 60s. He died in Rav Kook died in 1935. So he invited Rav Karelitz to come and visit Yerushalayim, and the Chazanish said, "No, he's not coming." So Rav Kook said, "You know, come and daven at the Kotel. I mean, not, it's not coming to visit me. I mean, I'd love to talk to you, but come and daven at the Kotel." And, and Rav Karelitz's answer was, "I will come to Yerushalayim when the third base of Mikdash is built, the third temple, but not before." And I think that was his practice, that uh, he rarely visited, if ever, Yerushalayim uh, during the years that he lived in Eretz Israel, which again is interesting, sort of an interesting statement of faith. <coughs> what happened in the end between the two rabbis, I feel, is really quite significant because the uh, Haredi sector generally does not abide by the Heta Mechira, and the what we would call the modern Orthodox sect or the Mizrahi sect of the Kibbutzim, etc., in Eretz Israel do abide by the Hetzal Hira.